Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, January 9th, 2023, and we're on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebrich with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Ero. And if you're interested in potentially turning your green eggs and ham into a surf and turf, may you consider this week's fish the lingcod. Awesome. And I'm very pleased to welcome our two guests, both with the Alaska Department of Fishing Game. We're happy to have Brittany Blaine back to join us. And she's now an area manager with the Prince William Sound and North Gulf Coast. And Brittany, we learned a lot from you about pelagic and non-pelagic rockfish here in Alaska in season one. We're also very happy to have Donnie Arthur with us, who's also a fish biologist. So very much looking forward to learning more about Lincoln and very warm welcome to both of you today. Thanks for having us. Yes, we're excited to be here. Thank you. Awesome. Okay, so we fish for black rockfish a lot out of Homer, out of Seward. And while we're not targeting lingcod per se, we've caught quite a few and some of them have been like freaking huge and fearsome looking. So I was hoping one of you could first help us imagine if we had just caught one, what would we see? What would it be like to have one of these fish like on deck or in our hands? Yeah, that's a great question. So lingcod, the first thing you'll notice about them is their large head, many teeth. That's their diagnostic characteristic right there. They're often referred to as bucket mouth or bucket head because they do just have such a large head and they kind of have a cod-like body where they have two dorsal fins. They're actually not a true cod, but they have giant pectoral fins. They can range from tan to dark brown, many weird colors, including orange, even blue. And they usually have some sort of patterning on them, modeling that I always like to think they look kind of like they have cheetah print. Very cool and looking. It's a good description. And that's an adaptation for them, the way they look and the way their body form is. Yeah. So it has a lot to do with where they live. They are often associated with rock piles, rocky pinnacles. And so those pectoral fins help them kind of balance, stay deep into those crevices so they can act as an ambush predator, help give them burst of speed. So this all feeds into their feeding ecology, even their reproductive ecology. And they can grow pretty large. Yeah. What's the biggest one that's known on record? Oh, yeah. In Alaska, the largest sport caught lingcod was 82 pounds, 9 ounces. Okay. There have been recorded lingcod that were larger caught commercially. In fact, there was a 105-pounder caught in British Columbia. They can grow very large, in excess of 5 feet long. Sometimes they're even called sea dragons. Oh, that's a cool name. I always like to kind of look at the family and genus to see who a fish is related to. And I was really surprised, actually, that they're related to Greenland because that's another fish we catch incidentally while we're fishing for rockfish. And I guess I was wondering if one of you guys could describe where these fish are positioned within that family and if there's any other close relatives that folks might be familiar with. Absolutely. So as I mentioned before, lingcod are not a true cod. So they are not in the Gadidae family. They're actually in the hexagramid. So they are a cousin of rock greenling that are often caught throughout coastal Alaska. They are the largest member of the greenling family, and so much larger than their counterparts and much more voracious than their relatives in the hexagramid family. Yeah, if you've ever caught a greenling, like the kelp greenling, they don't get very large. You typically see them a much, much smaller size. Yep. They are beautiful. Yeah. And they're so tasty. (laughs) We had a guy on to talk about scaly head sculpins, which they're not particularly closely related. But I do think I remember from that conversation that Thaddeus was talking about these guys preying on sculpin and being a a major predator for them. So is that true or what else are these guys eat? 
Yeah, so they are largely thought of as a voracious predator, but they are actually more omnivorous than people think. They don't just mm-hmm. eat other large fish. Commonly, they'll eat black rockfish, hence mm-hmm. why, Katrina, you probably run into them <laughs> at the same time fishing. But they'll also eat pretty much anything that comes by. In our port sampling program, they have cut open the stomach of a lingcod and seen entire pink or coho salmon in their stomachs. But if a school of sand lances come by, which are pretty small prey, high energy content, they have that big mouth. Instead of just getting one, say, rockfish, they might get a like a big bite of sand lances and end up with eating 30, 40 sand lances at once. So they'll eat smaller prey too. Pacific herring, they'll eat shrimp as well. You don't want to be a fish swim by a lingcod, really, because <laughs> they're so just aggressive. There was actually a lingcod, I believe in Washington, that had eaten like a 12, 15 pound yellow eye. So it oh, dang. looked like this had this giant basketball in its stomach. So you could see their breath of prey. Yeah, anything that can fit in their mouth. They'll even cannibalize. A lingcod can eat another lingcod that's almost its same size. Oh, like dang. That, they have that large of a mouth gap that they can eat pretty large prey. Yeah. So I, I just want to key in real quick on something you said there, because, you know, you mentioned this variety of prey and that's all well and good. The thing that really stood out was when you said that there was full salmon in their stomach, because I recall when I was a volunteer down at the Oregon Coast Aquarium, you know, the lingcod really got people's attention. They see the size of this fish. They tried to recreate this aquarium where it's like you're moving from inshore to offshore. So they had these rock pilings with these rockfish and the lingcods, they'd either be sitting on the rock pilings or sitting up on the glass tunnel that you're going through. And they didn't seem to be particularly active. So it really startled me when you said that they were able to just track down a salmon. So how do you reckon that would occur? I don't believe that they're actually chasing salmon down. I think it was just the salmon's poor choice to swim by a rock pile and a lingcod that had been maybe dormant, maybe processing food from previous days. You're the unfortunate salmon swimming by and (laughs) he can lunge out and grab you. And with those 18 teeth that are inward pointing in their mouth, it's hard for a fish to get away so they can capture even a fast prey like a salmon. Savages. One last thing, we're talking about how big they get. Does this size preclude them from being the prey of other things? Or are I know we've talked about salmon sharks on this show. I know we've got orcas up there. Are there things that can eat lingcod that they got to be on the watch out for? Yeah, as I mentioned, other lingcod, you got to worry about them. But yeah, there has been documented stellar sea lions, seals, orcas, many large marine mammals feeding on lingcod. Not all that common, but it definitely does occur. So they do have natural predators as well. What's the range of these guys? Where can you find them in this Pacific region where we're at? Yeah, so they're pretty widespread range along the West Coast, all the way down to Baja, California, out to the Aleutians of Alaska. So pretty large range for a West Coast fish. Okay. I do want to pitch a question here to Brittany just to get her back in the fold. So you're the manager now of this area. This is a sport fish. You've said it's also been caught commercially. So what's the management like for this species up there in Alaska? I always think of our area as the hierarchy. As people want halibut, then they want lingcod, then they want Mm. rockfish. That's the go-to. Lingcod are often a bonus fish like rockfish have typically been. But we have some certain rules in place to protect them. We don't allow people to keep lingcod until July 1st. We don't allow harvest um, until they're 35 inches in length. And that's Mm. to allow for two reproductive events to happen. The reproductive history is very interesting because after the eggs are released, the males are actually nest garters and they guard the eggs. 
So they're super aggressive during that time because they're protecting the eggs. So we are in turn protecting the males in that kind of April, May, June time period when they're guarding the eggs to keep people from harvesting too many because something comes in front of them. They're very aggressive protecting their eggs. And then once they get removed from the nest, those eggs are going to be able to predation by other stuff. Exactly. Exactly. Are they actually doing any kind of construction or is it just like a rock pile or something like a spot they really like that they've picked out? Yeah, pretty much any rock crevice, a little burrow in a rock pile. If it's easier to guard, you're going to keep out the greenling and rockfish and starfish that would eat those eggs. Okay. They highly fecund fish. Awesome question. I love talking about fecundity. I did my thesis <laughs> on yellow eye rockfish fecundity. And Katya Berghaus is actually doing a fecundity study on Lincoln. But some of the older studies, they're very outdated, not from Alaska, right along the West Coast, but they saw fecundity numbers as high as half a million, so 500,000 eggs in a large female. Maybe they don't have 3 million eggs like a yellow eye rockfish can have, but you know, half a million is it's pretty good. not a drop in the bucket. <laughs> That's pretty good. So once these eggs hatch, what's the rest of the life history of this fish through adulthood? Are they having to like make their living out there on these rock pilings with all these adults and predatory rockfish and stuff like that? Or do they find themselves moving along the currents and finding some other more suitable habitat for a juvenile fish? Yeah, they hatch like any other fish. They're coming out of a pretty small egg, basically like a pelagic larvae. And so they do drift with the currents, but they grow incredibly fast in that larval stage. And even in that first year. How big within that first year? I think they can grow almost a foot in that first year. Once in a while, we'll go out and we just can't keep these small lingcod off. And we'll see these massive recruitments of just these eight to 16 inch lingcod. And that's (laughs) them just coming through a recruitment wave after growing so fast in that first year. In terms of their reproduction, like when are they reaching maturity? And then how long do these fish live? We know that the rockfish as you mentioned in that previous episode, can live a very long time. Are these fish kind of comparable or what's their story there? So they're not nearly as long lived as rockfish, just an extreme case in regards to life history. But lynx cod live up to 25 years, so not necessarily short lived, but they're fairly fast growing in that time. Females mature somewhere between three and five years old at about 24 to 30 inches. And the males mature a little bit earlier, around two years. So you mentioned managing based on inches and kind of using that as a proxy for the age of the fish. Is that related to the growth of the male or the female there? It tends to be a little more directed at the female. So they are typically about the same size roughly at any given age, but males do mature about a year earlier. And that's just probably relates to the energetic demand it takes to produce eggs versus milk in testes. Yeah. Is there any difference in how the males and the females look? It's really hard to tell. Nothing morphologically, none of, you know, no fin size, coloration, really even size. You can tell the difference between a male's reproductive parts and a female's. You can tell one's more adapted for depositing eggs and one's more elongated Mm -hmm. to melt onto the eggs that are deposited into crevices and cracks and rock piles. So so that'd be about the only way. And that, that even takes an expert eye. Yeah, for sure. It may not be sexual dichromatism like we have in the greenlings, but it seems like there is a lot of color variation in the lingcod. Do you know what causes that? I suspect it has a lot to do with just blending into their habitat. If you're a lingcod that's maybe your residence is on near a kelp bed, your color might help you blend into that environment. Whereas if you're in a dark rock pile, you might be a little darker. So I suspect some of it has to just do 
with blending into your environment, yep. you camouflage to benefit you as a predator. Yeah. While we're talking color, I got to ask about the blue meat That's- guy. And I chatted about this ahead of time, but I argue that it's green, but. <laughs> that's okay. that's splitting what, hairs there what, what's up yeah i guess you with your green eggs and ham i'm sorry your joke your blue eggs and ham but what's up with the what's up with the flesh coloration is that kind of across the board across the range or are there specific areas where that's more common or Great. is it just a rare occurrence Great questions. Yeah. So like one of the most bizarre facts about lingcod and actually all hexagrammas, so all green links can have blue meat as well. There's no certain answer as to why the meat's blue. And when you see it, it's almost alarming. It, it, <laughs> aquamarine blue to like greenish teal. The thought is that it is linked to diet. And there's a regional differences in some of the southern populations. 20 plus percent of oh, lingcod wow, okay. have blue meat. There was a recent paper published by Aaron Galloway et al. just last year, and they looked at it across regions. They saw in Southeast Alaska, about 13% of lingcod have this bluish green meat. But they did find that actually it's more prevalent in females throughout their entire range. Is there a correlation between the external pigmentation of the fish and the color of the musculature? I think I've caught one myself here in Alaska, but California more commonly. Um, is where I've caught them and seen them. And yeah, you'll see when you pull them up, they have that little bit of a blue hue and the meat's you know, got that little blue to it as well. I have one more color question. So we grew a bunch of like purple cauliflower this summer. And when I cook that, it's like beautiful purple. And then I cook it and it turns like gray. Does the meat stay blue when you cook it or does it turn white? So when you do cook it, you could have this nice big aquamarine colored filet. When you cook it, it does go back to you know traditional white fleshed okay. lingcod meat okay so you gotta dye it afterwards okay yeah <laughs> <Diet green Exactly>. for <laughs> guy. <laughs> in terms of fishing do you guys have any tips or strategies for anglers it seems like when we go fishing i mean we're targeting black rockfish there's a lot of them in the water column and it seems like nothing really gets to anything else except for very occasionally. How do you target a lingcod specifically? Wait, well, first though, I want to ask you, have you ever had a lingcod attack your rockfish? Oh, we've had them follow them up. They haven't. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So it's one of my favorite things is you're reeling in a rockfish and this lingcod will just follow it up and just hang out on the surface and just watch like waiting for it to pop off or something. I've had where I'm reeling in a rockfish and all of a sudden I get a secondary slam and yeah. you've got a lingcod that just attacked your rockfish. So what do you like to fish for? And so you've said, what, down south in California? Or what What have you caught them on before? Oh, gosh. I always say, like, if you have nothing else, whether you're going for halibut or lingcod, a, a jig head with a white tail, something that's mimicking a fish because they do just nail fish so often. I mean, I pulled out about a 16-inch lingcod out of a lingcod once on one that I caught. Something that looks kind of like a squid jig or a jig head with the white tail. Those are my go-tos always. Big rubber salmon? Yeah, big rubber tails. Yep. They see those tails and they, you know, it's just right on that rock pile, right? You know. Yeah. How many um, ounce jig heads? That always depends on the conditions. Tide. I mean, you know, and the tide and how deep you're going down. Go-to is always 12, 16 ounce at least, unless you've got dead, calm, slack water. You know, you could fish a four ounce, but that's pretty rare. Those tides can be ripping pretty good and it's sometimes hard to get your bait will just go. Yeah. If you don't have the right amount of weight on there. So yeah, definitely. I think depending on what part of the cycle it's in. Yeah. Yeah. Donnie, what's your favorite? One of my favorite, it's called a hex bar. It's a really simple jig, like a hexagon. And it's just a long <laughs> silver bar. Usually has a little 
red piece of plastic at the bottom to add some action. And that is a classic Lincoln jig. It's super simple. It's heavy and it gets down quick. And they usually will smack that the minute it hits the bottom because it's so heavy and so streamlined. It gets right through that school of black rockfish. Are you keying into any kind of features on the ocean floor or depth or anything like that? I love fishing lingcod shallow. You can catch lingcod from 20 feet to 500, but I really like fishing lingcod shallow. I think there's a lot of prey going by the top of these pinnacles that are shallower, 20 to 60 feet. Plus when you hook them with that much water, they'll hit and you might reel them up super easy to surface. And then all of a sudden they get a burst of energy and they'll take you right back to the bottom and try to wrap you up in a rock pile or something. So I really do. I enjoy fishing shallow for them. Okay. If you are fishing around these rock piles, are you having to worry about them cutting your line on something sharp and jagged? And what kind of pound test are you having to use? Donnie and I have spent a lot of time, we've done a lot of rockfish studies out in the sound over the years. And our go-to is really like that braided line. You know, it can still fray on rocks, but it tends to be a lot stronger, lower diameter. So I like braid and I'm usually running anywhere 40 to 80 pound test braid. Yeah. What kind of information are you guys still trying to determine about lingcod? Like, what are some of the studies going on right now about them? Oh, gosh. Donnie mentioned Katia's study, which is a lot of the reproduction stuff. There's not a good uh, stock assessment out there on lingcod. So really, anything that can get us a better handle on how the stock's doing. You know, we see these different age classes coming in. So one season, we might catch all 10 to 12 inch size fish. And then the next season we're catching like 16 to 20 inch fish. And so we can see this, but it's this side data. It's not a study associated with, but it's just good information that we get. Yeah. Observations that we get from anglers or from our own work to kind of get a handle on what the recruitment's like to the fishery. Because lingcod data we get from our port sampling program, and that's for legal size fish, right? So we get data, age, length, sex data on fish that are over 35 inches, but we don't have a good handle on sublegal fish. So any information we can get is super valuable. We get an idea of angler interviews. We get information, how many they caught, how many they released. We get a handle on it that way. But stock assessment data is always lacking. A lot of marine fisheries, if only we could count every single fish out there to know Mm -hmm. what's an okay number to harvest. That's always a tough side of being a manager. Is the sense that these guys are doing pretty well or do we have an idea just overall kind of health of the populations, at least in Alaska and maybe beyond, if you know that? Yeah, we're doing fine. We had back in, I think it was 2018, we actually reduced the bag and possession limit for lingcod pretty significantly, basically cut it in half. And that was in part because we don't have a good level of information. It's important for us to be able to maintain population and we want people to be able to fish for these fish and keep them if they want to keep them. Down the road, we always hope for better stock assessment information, whatever we can get. What was the bag limit and what is it now? So it was two and four. And this is in Prince William Sound, varies by area. Now it's it's one and one. Okay. Yeah. So pretty good change. Yeah. One and one's right, isn't it, Donnie? <laughs> yes. And what, <laughs> he which, made a face. And I, oh, I just wanted to clarify when Brittany says like two and four or one and one, that is bag, two, and like, bag and possession limit. Exactly. So you can keep two one day and two the next day, but you can't get all four in one day. Exactly. Okay. And it, yeah. yeah, like process, right? Bagged up and yeah. That change didn't have like a huge reduction. It's not common for people to catch a lot of lingcod. So when we go out, for instance, you might only catch one that's legal. Okay. So that, that, that point you bring up there, I got two questions now. One, Katrina just said, okay, you can process it and put it in the freezer. Is that true? Because I, I know some places like, okay, fish in the freezer count as being possessed. 
and that you can't keep possessing that. But does the processing get that off of the possession limit? You can see Donnie's itching to say it's the actual lingo. Yeah, so it's basically it has to be preserved in a manner that it could be consumed two weeks later safely. Yeah. So that's good. Yeah, you wouldn't leave it in your cooler for two weeks. There's other yeah. means like some people will salt them. That's yeah. a means that, you know, or some sort of other technique. But freezing is the typical one. Yeah. OK. I'm glad I asked about that because <laughs> I definitely in my head, freezing still counts as part of it's being possessed. And I know other states, I think that's part of the rule. But it's anyhow, totally so, yeah, yeah. You're talking about like the importance of getting this stock assessment to figure out how things really stand and what kind of pressure a fishery can face. If you do get the stock assessment back and it says that, okay, we got to restrict what we're allowing people to keep. And we're already at one daily bag in possession. Where do you go from there? How do you lower it more to ensure that you're not over harvesting this species? Sure. Yeah, no, that's a good question. We can always go to an annual limit. That's the next step. So an angler might be only able to keep one or five per year. We have annual limits for other species in other places, so it's not outside the norm. But there's a stair-step approach. You, you do bag and possession limits. You can do season restrictions, so we could shorten the season as well. So, yeah, a few different options that we could look into if we ever needed to take management action. And that goes for any fish species, not just lingcod. Got it. Say I catch one, it's undersized, or I catch a big one and it's out of season. What are some handling tips? Like handling these fish efficiently, safely for yourself, safely for the fish? Well, actually, one rule that's always been, and it's it's really for any fish, but it's always been specific for lingcod, is you're, you don't gaff it. Like, you're not allowed yeah. to gaff a fish if you're going to release it. And people have different thoughts on this. If you have a gaff and you throw it through their mouth, how is it any different than when we use a deep water release on a rockfish? If you put a hook through a meshy area of their mouth, is it really going to hurt them? Probably not. But if you gaff them in the gut, they're probably not going to live, and we definitely don't want people doing that. And a gaff is like a, it's a, I don't know what the dimensions are, but probably a centimeter spear that you put through a halibut or, yeah. Yeah. It's a lot bigger than putting a hook in a fish's mouth when you're doing a deep water release kind of thing. Yeah. Lingcot, Donnie mentioned the teeth on them, right? It's not like salmon or something, hold it by its lip and pull it up. You got to be real careful. And if you can keep it in the water and just pop the hook out carefully, like any fish, keep it in the water as much as you can. Don't stick your hands under its gills. And that's another go-to people like to do is because their heads are so big and it's such a good spot to kind of put your hand around. If you could do it carefully, sure. But sticking your hands that close to their gills, that's not a good method. Some people like to use the gaff to just pop the hook out. That's a, another method. Donnie, you got some others. He's caught a lot more lingcod than me over the years. So, Yeah, I just think it's uh, anything you're going to catch and release, like trout, even lingcod, which seem like a pretty hardy fish. Right? Keep them in the water as much as possible is the best way. A lot of people will handle them with basically a set of claws that open and retract, and that'll allow you to hook onto their mouth and allow you to control them a little bit often referred to as boga grips. They help you hold on to their mouth so you don't get stuck by their teeth. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> you don't want your fingers getting chomped off by a link cod. But yeah, and so that will help control them and allow you to pop the hook out in the water. I often use a net. They do go a little crazy once they're in the net, but it's just easier to control them. And once they settle down, they're just going to lay flat there in the net and then you can pop the hook out, turn them loose. And it's pretty amazing once you let them loose, how fast they just with a massive burst of energy, just take off. I always try to just will them to throw the hook when they come to the surface. Yeah. And like, <laughs> let them shake, shake, shake. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Sometimes they'll shake it loose themselves. Yeah, it's kind of like, oh, nice. No. <laughs> you know, a lot of people, they see 
these lingcod, they kind of look like an extended rockfish, and they're used to catching rockfish and having this big barotrauma where it's, they get this expanded swim bladder and it forces the guts out of their mouth. Is that something that you see with rockfishes too or no? Yeah, we do not see barotrauma in lingcod. I think partly has to do with just their biology. They're moving up and down the water column throughout their life, possibly daily. In order to be able to do that, you can't have a closed swim bladder like a rockfish does. And so lingcod, in fact, actually don't have a swim bladder. And this allows them to just move up and down in the water column. They probably are expending more energy than, say, a fish with a swim bladder to do so. But yeah, they just don't have a closed swim bladder. And so they don't experience barotrauma. Guy, what's the fish nerd term for closed swim bladder? Physoclistus. <laughs> okay, that's what I was thinking. Nice. Yeah. And Physostomus is open. Uh, There you go. (laughs) Good job. I assume you've eaten this fish, both of you guys? Oh, yeah. Yeah? Can you give us any indication of what it tasted like or how it was prepared or any suggestions for folks out there? Yeah, lean cod to me, what's different is they're flakier. The meat's flakier than, say, more dense like a rockfish or a halibut. So my go-to with it is typically baking it. If I want to be simple, I'll just do a sweet chili sauce or something on the on top or throw it on the barbecue, just like I'm going to do a chunk of salmon. I have children, so I'm big into making fish nuggets, everything into mm-hmm. fish nuggets. <laughs> and this one I don't really care to do it with, though, because it just falls apart a lot more. So baking's my go-to. Okay. Donnie? Slingcott are super tasty. They're actually pretty mild, so they don't have a strong fishy taste if they're well taken care of when you catch them. And as Brittany said, they're kind of flaky. So they do make really good tacos. Lingcod tacos are great. But my go-to is actually, I love, for some reason, I love putting lingcod in curry. I like putting a big chunk and then it flakes into the curry. That is my go-to. I almost use lingcod exclusively for curry and save the halibut and rockfish for the tacos. Okay. Like I said, I haven't eaten one, but if they're anything like greenling, really miss the panfish from the lower 48. And that's like the closest thing I've found a bluegill or a crappie or anything yeah. like that. So yeah, absolutely. I see, I see a lot of similarities to maybe some panfish from the lower 48 to the meat of all hexagram. It's really tasty, yeah. really mild. And the nice thing is, is as opposed to a bluegill or something, you can get a pretty large filet off a link cut. Yeah. You mentioned anglers and providing information. Is there anything folks can do specifically if they catch a link cut? How do you receive information and what information would you like, if anything? That's a great question. Yeah, that's good. One of the most important things for us and where we get a lot of our information is from our port sampling program. So we have certain ports that when anglers come in, they can bring their fish in to get sampled by our samplers that work down in, in the area. The biological sampling is important. That's actually, as on the management side, that's how we really look at trends of what's going on. We can look at age classes over the years. We can look at the lengths of the fish over the years. And that is what gives us our best stock assessment indicators. You can see certain years show up as dominant when there's been a good reproductive event. And that helps us get a handle on what's going on. So if an angler comes into a port and our port sampler is there and says, hey, did you catch any lingcod today? It's great if you have the fish with you or at the very least the carcass. So if they actually bring the carcass back in with them into port, they can take that. They can get the otolus from it. They can still get the lengths. They can still get the sex of the fish. The message I guess I would put out to people is if you're ever in any of the ports in Alaska and a port sampler approaches you, please provide them the best information you can. You brought something up that's interesting about lingcod, the aging structure that is most commonly used. Oh, yes. Thank you. It's not actually the otolus that we take on those. Are you using like fin rays or something? 
Yeah, the dorsal fin rays between the fourth and eighth ray, yeah, has been proven to be the most reliable structure to age from. Surprisingly, lingcod otoliths are really small for their size. When you Mm. look at the otoliths of a cod or even a rockfish, they're fairly large, but yeah, lingcod are very elongate and small. And so it makes aging them via otoliths pretty inconsistent. And otoliths are like a little bony structure inside the head that has rings, kind of like a tree. Exactly. So otolith meaning ear stone. So yeah, exactly. That's a piece of calcium carbonate in the ear that lays down annuli like tree rings. Yeah. But those same annuli actually can be viewed in the dorsal fin rays of lingcod. Our program is the groundfish sampling program. So it's halibut, lingcod, and rockfish, and even sharks if they catch those. So anytime someone can bring their carcass in and if the port sampler isn't there, they can just chuck it. But if they're there, it's great information for us to have. Okay. This has been very interesting conversation and really appreciate you guys coming on and yeah. For sure. It's been fun. Thanks, you guys. Awesome. We hope everyone gets out there and enjoys all the fish, especially the ling cod. It's not a ling. It's not a cod. It's even cooler. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebeck and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Race Car. Produced and story edited by Tasha A.F. Lemley. Production management by Gabriella Montekin. Post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Regional Office of External Affairs. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish. Fish.